But Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai. So we're dealing during the Persian period. The folks have come back from the, uh, a small group, about 50,000 or so, have come back from the Babylonian exile, and they're living in the ruins of Jerusalem, trying to get on with things, right? Um, so, anyway, so listen to the word of God. I'm going to begin with verse 1 of Zechariah. If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along with me in that. To make sure I'm not making stuff up as I go along here. All right. Listen to the word of God. And by the way, this is just a couple months after Haggai. So we have very specific dates here. In the eighth month and the second year of Darius, who was the Persian emperor, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Idio saying, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, I just want to point out this idea of return. The Hebrew word here is the same word that's used for the coming back from the exile, but it's also another word for repent. So it's playing on the theme of coming back home, both physically and coming back home to God, which is... An important idea here. So, therefore I say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the former prophets proclaim, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or heed me, says the Lord. Your ancestors, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my word and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your ancestors? And so they repented and said, the Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he planned to do. On the 12th, 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son Berachiah, son of Adio. In the night I saw a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the shadows. And behind him was a red sorrel and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who spoke with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, they are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Then they spoke to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have patrolled the earth, and the whole earth remains at peace. And then chapter 6. And again, I looked up and saw four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot drapple gray horses. Then I said to the angel who spoke with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me, These are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of the whole earth. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Lord, open up our eyes and our heart that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I had lunch the other day with uh, Jim Gray, pastor over at Dorset Church, and we were talking a little talking about the training program that they have for, for uh, lay ministers 
here in the conference. I've taught one class and they were talking to me about teaching another class. And Jim Gray says, what, have you ever taught a class on heretics? And he kind of smiled and I go, well, Jim, we all are heretics. So it'd be a short class. I remember um, I had a theology professor uh, who was from um, Trinity University in Toronto. And he was an Anglican priest. And I can still remember him in a lecture going, Luther, Martin Luther was a heretic, but he was a marvelous heretic. <laughs> well, I've, I think the, the, the idea that we all are wrong is different than necessarily being a heretic. I think a heretic is someone who consciously renounces the faith. Okay? But if being a heretic means you get some things wrong about the faith, then we all are heretics in one way or the other. Now, don't get me wrong. I think truth matters. I don't think we can significantly change the foundation of the faith without it becoming another religion. But interpreting and understanding what God is doing in the world has always led to different interpretations and emphasis. There is a frequent critique from armchair atheist or armchair skeptic. So it goes something like this. Well, there are so many different religions, you're all wrong. Or look at how all you Christians can't agree on anything. Look at how you all disagree. And to be honest with you, Christians have been aware of this problem from the beginning. Matter of fact, and part of the reason the New Testament was written was to try to get everybody on the same page. Now, there are those who've tried to solve the problem by saying the church is without error when it speaks from its authority. Okay, the Roman Catholic Church has one version of that with the Pope. Our Greek Orthodox brothers and sisters have a different version of it. But basically, the church is without error when it speaks authoritatively. Now, conservative Protestants didn't like that. So instead of an inerrant church, they tried to come up with an inerrant Bible. The liberal enlightenment answer to this was, well, truth is how you experience it. So spiritual truth is however you experience what's being said, which has evolved or de-evolved today, depending on your perspective, to everyone gets to create their own truth. How's that going right now? Now, there is serious philosophical and theological thinking behind all these positions. I'm just not trying to you know, make fun of them. But in the history of religious people, it's often boiled down to, we are right and they are wrong. Or in America, I'm right, I'm not so sure about the rest of you. But I think there's a better way. And I, I don't think any of those solutions, though well-intentioned, are ultimately biblical ones. And I think Brother Zachariah can help us rediscover the mystery of how the Bible is both the word of God and the word of God's people and the word of God's people going back to God. I think it's kind of this beautiful, um, it's like a well-set-up soccer play. Now, the exile, we've been talking about that. The exile and the restoration 
really is one of the central events of the whole whole Testament. The shape of the Hebrew scripture really comes together during this critical hundred years or so. And there were many different visions of, of what we need to do so that what happened never happens again, right? How do we make sure we never lose our temple and our home again? So the prophet Ezekiel had a vision. We need to have a new Jerusalem with an enormous new temple, a sanctified community where no one does anything wrong. That's kind of Ezekiel's vision. Haggai wants the temple built now. And he flirts with the idea of the restoration of the Davidic king. The writer of Isaiah 56 through 66 is less concerned about the temple and an earthly ruler, but has this vision of an end time where Jerusalem is restored and the people of Israel are the center of a new and improved world. Zechariah's vision literally comes to him in a dream. Sometimes you should read Zechariah 1 through 8 because it's really a series of kind of weird dreams that Zechariah has. And even though he comes from a priestly family, we know that from the genealogy, he's not that interested. He doesn't have a sense of urgency about rebuilding the temple. But what he does have a vision of is allowing God to recreate the people, to allow God to restore the land to allow God to return to a people that are ready to return to him. Matter of fact, Zechariah has a vision, you don't need a wall, because the only wall Jerusalem needs is the presence of God around us. And so there's an interesting dynamic here. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. Matter of fact, the book of Ezra has them working together. And Zechariah is certainly aware of Ezekiel's prophecies And he quotes other works as well. But they all have a little bit of a different vision of what's the right thing to do. And I think this is a really beautiful way of of understanding the dynamic of how the different voices matter as long as they come together around God. That's the difference. In other words, God comes to us in a way that we can understand it. That's the only way we have, right? God speaks to us in a language, in an experience, in a presence that we can somehow make sense of. But because we're humans, right, we have all that kind of limitations. And the Bible is not different from that. Let's take the four horses, for instance, okay? Now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse of Revelation are what? This is how the world ends. Have any of you read uh, the book Good Omens or seen the, the show on TV? It's kind of, it's a funny show. It's about two, a demon and an angel who work together to try to keep the world from ending. Okay. They're actually working against Armageddon happening. And there's a chapter in the book where we get reintroduced to the four horsemen. Okay. Famine no longer creates famine. Famine writes diet books and opens up a chain of restaurants where you only get a sliver of chicken and a bean. War is an arms salesperson, is an arms dealer in Africa, driving around Africa with a truck full of rocket launchers. Death, death has different jobs. When we see death in the the book, death is a sailor on an oil tanker who accidentally flicks the switch and dumps oil into the ocean. And pestilence lost its job in the 30s 
when they discovered antibiotics. And so instead of pestilence, there's pollution. Okay. Although this was written before COVID, pestilence maybe made a comeback right during COVID. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation, which introduced the final judgment, in the book of Zechariah are God's messengers representing the four points of the compass. There are other images that get reinvented that we, are, we get from Zechariah. For instance, the second vision of Zechariah is the four horns. Well, those of us who just went through uh, vacation Bible school, those four horns influenced the vision of Daniel. The fourth vision, there's an adversary that accuses Joshua of the priest. The Hebrew word for the adversary is Satan. This is the first appearance of the Satan. And we're not sure in Zechariah if it's just an accusatory, a prosecutor, but the Satan shows up again in Job. And of course, by the time we get to Job, he's the prosecuting attorney, right? And by the time we get to the New Testament, Satan has a very different role, right? But that happens, that the first time we get a glimpse of him is in Zechariah. There's also this sense of Zechariah where you've got angels all over the place. You have angels, messengers. So no longer does God speak directly, but God speaks to Zechariah through an angel, which demonstrates that the view of God is getting bigger. Heaven's getting bigger, if you would. And all of this is to say that God continues to work in a time that we are found in. So there's a sense where, even though the scriptures are set, okay, you know, even if we found another book of, let's say we found the lost letter to the church at Laodicea, which Paul wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea that we don't have, we probably wouldn't add it to the Bible. Because what we have here, first with our Jewish brothers and sisters with the Hebrew scriptures and then the New Testament, is what the people of God over the years have said, this is what God has given us. And it's unique. It's uniquely the written word of God. But even within the Bible is this beautiful play between different voices. And it's not so important always to harmonize the voices, but to listen to the voices. I think that's maybe the biggest mistake in the history of Christianity. Sometimes if we had chosen to pray together instead of trying to win. Maybe if we had chosen to serve the poor together than trying to build an empire. Maybe if we prayed more and talked less, listened more to each other and to God, the family of God may look differently than it does today. The Torah reading this week was from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And it's a story where Moses, well, Moses, remember, first time he comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the people are worshiping the golden calf, what does he do? Remember what Moses does? Throws it down. Moses, one of the worst job descriptions ever, right? I've always thought, you know, if you remember the story, 
Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land and that, that seems like a, a punishment. I think he was just done. He says, oh, Moses, you don't get to come with us to the promise. That's okay. You guys go ahead, go on without me. I'm, I'm tired of being with you people. Go, go. I'm going to die. Thanks be to God, right? right? But there's a rabbinical story. So in the Ark of the Covenant, the new, you know, Moses has to go back up. And this time, there's different versions. But one version is he has to chisel himself this time because he got mad and broke it. The book, the Deuteronomy version doesn't really have it. He's angry. So it depends whether you read Exodus or Deuteronomy. But there's these wonderful rabbinical interpretations of what happens. And one of them is that not only is the reconstructed Ten Commandments put into the ark, but all the pieces of the first version are put into the Ark of the Covenant as well. And what is the symbolism of the broken ark in the covenant? Well, it could be you should always remember that you are broken people. Even though you are given the word of God, you, you have a tendency to disobey it. So it should be an act of humility, right? To remember, and that's really important. There's a reason we say a prayer of confession every week is because we need to. Okay, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not, I think I'll skip the prayer of confession this week. I had a pretty good week. I say one every day. And if I was more devout, I would say one, a couple one times a day, right? If I was more devout. But, so there's an image of the brokenness in, the, in there. But I also think there's a powerful image of, even though we're broken, even though we have all have our own opinions, even though the Bible is full of different perspective and voices, we're all in this ark together. And that God brings broken people into his family. I mean, that's the history of the Bible, right? People going away from God and returning to God. It's our story as well, right? And this idea that the broken pieces are in the covenant as well, but the many different voices, the many different parts that we are, are put together into the revealed word of God is, is to me the hope of the church. And it's not some grandiose vision because it begins with you and I. It begins right here in this little community of faith that we have. God is one. God's truth is God's truth. But you and I are mortals. We have trouble staying awake just to say our prayers. We can't understand everything. Sometimes our faith is strong. Sometimes it's not. But those of us who are many, the many pieces of this body of Christ come together in the broken body of Christ. In many ways, we are responsible for the broken tablets. But in the broken body of the Messiah, Christ, Jesus, we are healed. And that doesn't mean all the differences get cleared up. It just means they don't matter. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.